You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Before we get started today, we want to let you know that this is the last call for our October class, The Importance of Womanist Biblical Interpretation, that's taught by Reverend Dr. Angela Parker, one of our nerds in residence. And it's happening October 25th from 8 to 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Dr. Parker is going to cover the foundations, the fundamentals, and the future of womanist biblical interpretation. And when you sign up, you'll get the one-night live class, live Q&A session, link to class recording, and downloadable class slides. As always, it's pay what you can until the class ends, and then it's going to cost 25 bucks to download. Now, as always, if you want access to all of our classes, and who wouldn't just $12 a month will do it. You can become a member of the Society of Normal People. But to sign up for the class, just go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash womanist interpretation. We have something special for you. We're often asked about the problem of evil, where does suffering come from, and what does the Bible have to say about all of this? So we're going to do a two-part series on these questions. First, Today's episode here is on the Bible for normal people, and we're going to do a deep dive with two brilliant scholars on what the Bible has to say about all of it. So we have two people on this episode, but then we're going to continue the conversation next week on faith for normal people with Tom Ord, where we're going to talk about the same topics, but from a a theological framework. It'll be fun to highlight how biblical studies and theology might approach these questions differently, but it also gives us a chance to do a deeper dive on the topic as a whole. So don't miss out on today's episode and next week. For today, part one on the Bible for normal people, we're talking with Mark Brettler and Alan Lindsay. And Mark is a professor in Judaic Studies at Duke University and co-editor of the award-winning Jewish Study Bible that we've talked about on this podcast many times. Can't hail that enough. We've had Mark on the podcast twice before, and he's going to have to start getting a punch card here for a frequent flyer mile here. And we're really excited. W two or something. Going to put up with us again here a third time. Right. And Alan Lindsay, who by the way is you know one of my favorite students back in my days when I was teaching seminary, but he's professor in the history department. You never said that about me. I didn't because, well, anyway, we'll talk later. In therapy, we we keep this stuff for therapy, Jared. Come on, you know that. <laughs> but Alan's in the history department at, at the University of the Pacific and professor of religious studies, and he specializes in the study of first millennium ancient Near Eastern religious and literary traditions, which is a mouthful and it's a huge topic. And that's perfect for what we're talking about. Yeah, today. if you don't know what any of that means, just listen to what Alan says at the beginning of the episode and you'll say, oh, that's what oh, he does. That's what he does. Yeah, yeah. Right. All right, let's get into the episode. So there's an assumption that when humans are suffering, there is some kind of flaw in the human. What most people will think is the traditional view is the idea that if a person feels that he or she has sinned, then that is why they are being punished. And vice versa, if they are being punished or they are suffering from some sort of affliction, it's clearly because they have sinned. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and She said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. 
So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord. And others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome, Mark and Alan, to the podcast. It's great to have both of you on here. It's going to be a lively conversation. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. We have a, a big topic to talk about today, this idea of suffering and God's justice. And we really want to start from kind of the beginning in the ancient context, the Israelites, and what they were thinking about it as we find it in the biblical text that, that we have. You know, we have things like the book of Job, and there's probably a lot of other texts. And there is a context in which these were written in ancient Mesopotamia. So, let's start with the context. Can you give us an overview of some of the ways that the ancient might have thought, given some of the other texts, maybe even outside the Bible that we have, and kind of just walk us through that context? So, in the ancient Mesopotamian context, we have a number of texts that are related to the question of human suffering, and in all of the texts that we have, it's essentially humans are experiencing something bad, they're wondering why this is happening, and they lament, essentially, to a deity, or they lament to a fellow individual so, one of the texts that we have is called A Man and His God. There's a Sumerian version that's even more ancient than the Akkadian version, but I thought I'd start us off with the Akkadian version. It comes from the Old Babylonian period, so we're talking about the first half of the second millennium BCE, so let's say 1900 to 550 thereabouts. We don't really know when it was written exactly, except the Old Babylonian period. It's only available on one tablet and that tablet is damaged. <laughs> so, like so many texts from ancient Mesopotamia, it is filled with holes and gaps, and so our, our understanding is not very good. But it's a really powerful lament, essentially. A man calls out to his, his personal god, to this deity that's supposed to be his protector, and says, I'm suffering and I don't know why. What did I do wrong? And that question, what did I do wrong, is really central he goes on to talk about what he's experiencing. The deity then speaks to him and says, you're going to be all better. It's going to be okay. And then there's essentially an ending to this text that it's really kind of interesting how he says, I'm going to make a place for you. Don't worry about it. The, your way is cleared. Like uh, the, all the obstacles you've been experiencing are now out of your way. I'm going to heal you. Your diseases are blocked, he says. And then he, he gives him an exhortation to go and, and be a good person. There are these things that he's supposed to do with feeding the, the hungry or giving water to the thirsty, and it sort of ends this way. And so, this is one of our oldest reflections, but, you know, you can already see that the person is asking, what did I do wrong? So, there's an assumption there that when humans are suffering, there is some kind of flaw in the human. So that's one of our older texts, Old Babylonian. Alan, can I ask a question there? Sure. Just for clarification. So to say that there's something uh, flawed 
Right. Is that the word you used in, in well, humanity? Yeah, I avoided the word sin, but I mean, oftentimes they're thinking sin. Well, I think, I mean, that's a buzzword, I think, too, that might obscure us from, you know, trying to understand these things. But it could be an act of negligence. Yeah. I forgot to give you these offerings. That's not something we would normally think of as sin, forgetting to do something. So the suffering is caused by the deity. Well, from one perspective, right? But okay. It also, from another perspective, I think from the supplicant's perspective, it's caused by the supplicant himself or herself because they're saying, what did I do? <laughs> they understand that when they're experiencing suffering, there is an assumption that somewhere among humanity's various causes of it's them. If it's not a personal sin or an act of negligence, it could be a sin of the father. You know, because we have intergenerational kind of, of situations where if the father sins, then the son will, or the daughter, or the, the children will be punished. There are other etiologies, but anytime there's suffering, I think in the Mesopotamian sphere, the human being looks to themselves. And sometimes they will say, I didn't do anything. But this is really a confession of ignorance. And there's an assumption that probably somewhere I did do something, but I don't know what it is. So we see this really pretty clearly in that old Babylonian text, The Man and His God. And there's a really a lot to say here, but there are two other very important texts that we could talk about. One is the so-called Babylonian theodicy, and the other has a Babylonian name, Ludlil Baal Nameki, which simply means, I will praise the Lord of Wisdom. And the Lord of Wisdom in that text is Marduk, the high god of Babylon. The Babylonian theodicy is the one I don't know quite as much about. Ludlow is the one that I've spent most of my career thinking about. The theodicy was written very likely in the 11th century. We think it may have been written by a guy named Sagil Kanim Ubib. Not something you probably want to name your kid. <laughs> we know this because the poem, as we've reconstructed it from about a dozen manuscripts, has 27 poetic stanzas. And each of these 27 stanzas has 11 lines. And each of the 11 lines in each stanza begins with the same cuneiform sign. And so, if you string together all the first signs from the 27 stanzas, you get a sentence. That means something like, it translates something like, I am Sagil Kinam Ubib, the Mashmashu priest who blesses God and King. And for many, this exhortation, this, this acrostic that's built into the Babylonian theodicy is can be interpreted as the author, that Sagil Kinem Ubib is the author. Probably that means, because we know about this guy from other texts, he probably lived in the 11th century. So, this is at least a half a millennium away from a man and his God. So, this text is actually not directed to a deity, it's directed to a friend of the sufferer, who is not named in the text himself, it's just two guys talking. The sufferer begins by saying, uh, I'm an orphan, I'm poor, it's not fair, the gods have not smiled upon me. And the friend, so each stanza goes back and forth between the sufferer and the friend. And the friend responds and says, well, you should honor the gods. You're poor because you should honor the gods. And they go back and forth. And the sufferer complains about a number of things, especially injustice at the hands of the wealthy. He complains that the gods don't pay attention to his piety, which the friend comes back and says, yes, they do. You're just not good enough kind of thing. The friend defends that the rituals are effective, whereas the sufferer complains to the point where he says, I'm going to go rogue. Forget all about this. I'm just going to go do whatever I want. 
And the friend, of course, is very upset by this and continues to beat the traditional drum that the righteous are blessed, the evil will be punished, and you're experiencing misfortune because it's you. It's not the gods. And the ending is a little bit controversial. Several different scholars more or less said that the ending is incoherent. I think that the more reasonable interpretation comes from Takayoshi Oshima's uh, more recent edition from 2014 in translation, where he essentially says that the ending is that the friend tells him, you got to do the traditional thing, man, and your suffering will go away. And I think that's the right idea, that the sufferer has the last word and sort of comes around to the understanding that, yes, you're right, I need to honor the gods. That's the Babylonian theodicy in a nutshell. We could talk for a very long time about this text. But the other text, the one that I that I like the most, is Ludlil Belnameki, I Will Praise the Lord of Wisdom, which is a really complicated and sophisticated literary text, probably from the late second millennium BCE, perhaps a little bit older than the theodicy. We don't really know when it was written. It names a king, Nazi Marutash, who ruled in the 13th century, so it could have been written as early as the 13th century. We have Neo-Assyrian manuscripts in the 9th century BCE, so it had to have been written before that time, and that leaves, you know, <laughs> that leaves a lot of hundreds of years, like 600 years. So, it's a big window. In any case, this text is essentially a retrospective where the person who is suffering is actually named in the text eventually, Shubshe Meshrei Shakan, another one that you're not going to see in the telephone book. And he's praising Marduk for his anger and his mercy. So, there's this opening hymn, and by line 41 of the text, the man then begins this long retrospective about how his life fell apart in terms of his social standing and reputation, how his body fell apart with diseases that are inspired by demonic oppression and attacks. He has a series of dreams, and Marduk sends these ritual officials into his dreams, and they cure him. And it's interesting that after they cure him, he, in a very broken passage, seems to confess his sin, and then he goes to Babylon, and he, he seems to do again in a broken passage something called a shigu, or shigu prayer, which is a penitential prayer. He undergoes the river ordeal, which likely is another way for him to show his innocence and that he's been forgiven. And then he goes to the temple and he's reintegrated into society through a number of gates where at each gate he is given something by, uh, we assume, the deities. And at the end, he's happy again. He's praising the deity. It literally ends as it began with praise. And this description can't really do justice to this text. I mean, I spent 15 years thinking about this text and writing stuff about it. But what's interesting is this text is often called the Babylonian Job, or a story of the righteous sufferer. But we know now that he confesses his sin. So, again, we have a text where the suffering that the person experiences is the problem is with people. It's not with the deity. In fact, the person suffering praises the deity for his anger. And I think that this is really important. We do not understand this as 21st century individuals. If you're a theist, you think of God as benevolent. But Marduk is angry, easily. And he's just as easily will turn to mercy. But And there's they're successive in the poem. Anger first, mercy second. But it also is pretty clear that it doesn't matter what you do, Marduk does what he wants, and he will punish you, 
and eventually he'll come around and probably forgive you. But I mean, this guy has taken, Shibche Meshra Shakan has taken to the very edge of the grave. I had an undergrad professor, he used to say, uh, he's so old, he has one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel. And that was <laughs> Shibche Meshra Shakan. So, you know, in, in this text, because it's called the Babylonian Job, has been influenced by scholars' understanding of Job. And what I've tried to do in my own interpretive work is to show that we've messed up there. This text, this Ludlow Belnamiki, as well as the Babylonian Theodicy, are highly learned scholarly texts that are very much interested in drawing in the various kinds of scholarship and the various kinds of esoteric rituals, the various learned methodologies of using rare words and poetic structures that are complicated and incorporating rituals. There are commentaries, ancient commentaries, on both the Babylonian Theodicy and Lidlow. So, even maybe a millennia, millennium after these texts were written, people were still trying to figure out what they mean, and they were doing so in a way that scholars do today, say, on the Bible by writing commentary. Mm. Maybe that's a great segue to, to shift our focus to the Bible. But before we do that, I want to maybe summarize what I was hearing, and that is, within all these examples that were these ancient examples— there is the theme or the assumption that suffering is connected to human flaws, or it's sort of it, the fault is on the side of humans, however we want to talk about that, while avoiding probably uh, loaded terms like sin. And there is this the freedom of the deity. Maybe capriciousness is too far, but there is a freedom that the gods are going to do whatever the gods are going to do. And there isn't this assumption of benevolence within all of that. So, Capricious isn't too far. Okay. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think okay. it is. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week, and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital, and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways, and that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy, and I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way, and that's what therapy does for me. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com BNP today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot BNP. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. 
Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. So within that, let's turn our attention to the Bible. What does the Bible have to say about God's relationship to evil and to suffering, and how is it similar or different from that context? Well, of course, there is no such thing as the Bible. So aside from the fact that different religious groups have different Bibles, the Bible is fundamentally an anthology, and thus the Bible is going to have a whole bunch of different views on all of these issues. So maybe it's best to begin at the beginning, and I'll actually pick up on some of the points that Alan made. A lot of the Bible, to use his expression, beats the traditional drum. The world is good, and if you're seeing some flaw in the world, then that really means that there is a flaw in you. So biblical scholars for the last few centuries have disentangled two different creation stories in Genesis 1 through 3. We might as well start at the very beginning. And certainly the point of the first story, which runs from the very beginning through the middle of verse 4 of the second chapter, is that the world is tov, the world is good. And after the creation of people, quite remarkably, the totality of creation is tov ma'od, is very good. And that is the mainstream biblical view, but there are many other biblical views. So I would just point out, and here in some ways this picks up on Alan's understanding of the Babylonian theodicy, where he noted that the text suggests that man was created in a duplicitous fashion. When you look at the second story, I'd call it the garden story, rather than the fall of man or the original sin story, you start to see some of that duplicitous nature. But certainly when you look at the part of the flood story, which continues that story, at the very end of the flood story, after God smells the, quote, pleasing odor, the reach nichoach of the sacrifice that Noah offers, he says, I will never again curse the ground because of humans, for the inclination of the human heart is evil. The Hebrew word there is ra, exactly the opposite of just or tov, good, is evil from youth, nor will I ever again destroy every living being as I have done. So this is worth thinking about a little. I'm not going to unpack it a lot here, but what does it mean that at least according to this view, and again, this is not the only biblical view, uh, God created people with this evil inclination, which becomes very developed, especially in the rabbinic literature, with the notion that every person has two inclinations in him or her, a good inclination or an evil inclination. And Mark, you're saying that God created that. That evil inclination? I'm not saying that. I'm saying okay. I think the text is saying <laughs> yeah. Well, okay, you're saying the text says that. Yeah. That's what I mean. That's how I read the text. And of course, this is somewhat surprising, given the notion that many people have, which I really think is by and large a 
medieval notion from both the Jewish and the Christian tradition of an absolutely perfect and just God. And of course, that notion also has some biblical precedence, but it should not overwrite every other notion that exists about God in the Hebrew Bible. So I'm Jewish. We're toward the end of the Jewish liturgical year in terms of reading the Torah. We will complete it in about a week or so. Last week, we were in the wonderful poem in Deuteronomy chapter 32, where there you have the notion of God's perfection. There in 32 verse 4, you have Hatsur Tamim Po'olo. The rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are just and so forth. Absolutely no question about the divine justice. And indeed, again, to pick up on what Alan was saying, where I think he emphasized that one of the best ways for understanding different religions' conception of God is by looking at prayers, and especially by looking at laments or petitions, and especially by looking at petitions or laments of the individual. And here, too, I would like to offer a contrast between different biblical views. What most people will think is the traditional view is the idea that if a person feels that he or she has sinned, then that is why they are being punished, and vice versa. If they are being punished or they are suffering from some sort of affliction, it's clearly because they have sinned. So, for example, in, this is most famous perhaps in Christian tradition in Psalm 51, which is a very well-known psalm, Psalm 22 as well, or example, Psalm 32, where the supplicant says, I acknowledged my sin to you, I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. This is very comparable, and Alan, please correct me if I'm wrong, to some of the texts that you talked about. Person is suffering, that they think that they are suffering as a result of sin, they confess, and everything is going to be better. But I would like to contrast this to another type of psalm. A fair number of these laments of the individual in the book of Psalms do not contain such confessions. And in fact, contain the notion or the statement, the supplicant will say to God, you have hidden your face from me. Histarta panecha mimeni. A type of divine neglect. And again, you may be struck by that anthropomorphism. I may return to that a little bit later. But again, anthropomorphism, the notion that God is depicted in human form, or anthropopathism, the notion that God's emotions are depicted in a human way, is very, very typical in the Hebrew Bible. So I'd like to focus for a second on Psalm 6. And what's so important about the psalm, and many people don't realize this, is what this psalm is missing. This psalm, like some other laments of the individual, has absolutely no confession. This person says, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord. And the following word in Hebrew is key, properly translated in most translations, 
as four. And this is going to be the first of several such fours reflected by key or other words. You might have expected that to be followed by, you know, be gracious to me, God, because I'm confessing my sin, as in Psalm 51, Psalm 32. Uh-uh. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. O heal me, O Lord, for my bones are shaking with terror. Or a few verses later, turn, O Lord, save my life, deliver me. There, the next Hebrew word is leman, for the sake of. And again, you might have expected it to say, for the sake of my confession. Nope. But again, here the Hebrew says, for the sake of your steadfast love, God's chesed. Here translated steadfast love, an amazingly complex term to translate. And the psalm continues with no confession. I would argue that the supplicant here is saying, God, you're angry with me. I did nothing wrong. Get over your temper tantrum (laughs) and be nice to me because I deserve it. And I think that there are cases in the Hebrew Bible where God is depicted as having a temper tantrum. A good example is in the fourth book of the Bible, in Numbers chapter 17, of the rebellion of Korach and those who are around him. In that story, there's a debate about who the proper priest should be and so forth. This too, like the beginning of the book of Genesis or the flood story, is a conflation of two stories. But I'm going to focus on the one which has Korach, or in English, Korah, as its main hero. God gets very, very angry and says in Numbers, actually in the English here, it's chapter 16, verse 45, get away from this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces. Moses said to Aaron, take your censer, put fire in it from the altar, lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. And that is exactly what happens. And Aaron stood between the dead and the living with his censer and the plague was stopped. God's temper tantrum is being appeased by these various actions, by the incense that is being brought, that God is going to smell, and God feels better. Now, before I go on to more about this idea about God in much more human terms than we think of, let me just remind everybody that here, I do not want anybody to understand this in terms of a contrast of an Old Testament wrathful deity in contrast to a New Testament God of love, please do remember that in both the New Testament and in the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament, the way in which God is depicted is incredibly complex and multifaceted. And indeed, when you talk about the God of love in the New Testament, 
you know, most famously in the passage in Matthew 22, 23 and following about the importance of love, of course, what you have there are two quotes from the Hebrew Bible, from Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Leviticus 19, 18. So please, no contrasts between a wrathful God of the Old Testament and a loving God of the New Testament Please read the New Testament to the end and see what happens in the book of Revelation. But back to anthropomorphisms and anthropopathisms. The God of the Hebrew Bible does sleep, according to some people whose works are preserved in the Bible. And thus, why can terrible things sometimes happen to people? Well, God was asleep at the job. In the words of the psalmist who wrote Psalm 44, verse 23, Rouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake. Do not cast us off forever. So that too helps to explain why evil can exist in a world which God has created. You have something similar in the wisdom tradition too then, right, Mark? You certainly do. And I'm glad you got me to the wisdom tradition, because the wisdom tradition, namely ideas that you have in the three wisdom books of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, sometimes known by its Hebrew title, Kohelet, and Job, which in some ways are quite similar, at least in their learnedness to the text that Alan began with, have another idea of why terrible things can happen to people. This is found most prominently in Proverbs 3.11. But before I get there, I just have to remind all of those who are listening to this that corporeal punishment by parents was accepted as a norm in the biblical period. I am not advocating for that. Thus, the notion that you have very often even colonial American samplers Bear the rod and spoil the child, which is based on Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24. Those who spare the rod hate their children, but those who love them are diligent to discipline them. Proverbs in chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, takes up this notion because God, after all, in the Bible, is the father with a capital F. Therefore, it says there, my child, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves the one he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. This notion that if you're being punished or if you're suffering, it's not really punishment, but it's a way of showing love, became especially common in some Jewish texts in the second century for various historical reasons. And this idea is known by the technical term in rabbinic literature of isurin shel ahava, chastisements of love. In other words, chastisements that show how much God, the Divine Father, loves you. And now we've moved closer to the book of Job. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. 
Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes, but we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We love the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose and it's just my throat hurts and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double-action combination of prescriptive-strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. And I will admit that even though I've been studying and I've actually taught this book for more than 40 years, I do not fully understand it. But I'll share with you some things that I think I know. Number one, it is very important not to be overly influenced by the English idiom, the patience of Job, which of course comes from the New Testament, the King James Version translation of James 5.11. You have heard of the patience of Job. As important as this phrase is in English, the Greek should more accurately be translated, and so it is in the new edition of the New Revised Standard Version. You have heard of the endurance of Job, because indeed, in much of the book of Job, Job is not terribly patient at all. Though in some ways, in the first two chapters, and in the very last section, at the end of chapter 42, in the prose there, he is rather patient. In other words, what I am saying is Job is not a unified book. The narrative frame of Job tells a very different story than the poetic center. And one of the reasons that most scholars distinguish between the two is very much as in the Torah, there are different divine names which are used of God in different sections. 
The middle does not recognize the beginning at all. Hasatan, the adversary, translated by some as the Satan, we'll get to that guy in a moment, is never mentioned in the middle of the book. And as you all know, in the beginning of the book of Job, all of Job's children are killed. Yet in the middle of the book, in 1917, Job says, my odor is repulsive to my wife. I am loathsome to my children. And thus, in this prose section, you have a simple, although not at all so simple, and terribly theologically problematic notion that because of some goings on in heaven, there's some sort of wager between God and the Satan. And the Satan really gets the better of God. The Satan says, oh, why don't you do all these terrible things to Job? God exceeds in doing them. And ultimately, Job still remains steadfast in his faith. And as the book concludes, Job is ultimately rewarded. He gets double the wealth. He gets a new set of 10 children to replace the 10 children who are killed at the beginning. I shudder even as I say those words. He sees four generations, and it is really a lovely fairy tale ending of his living happily ever after. And all of this happens, as I said a moment ago, because Hasatan, the Satan, gets the better of God in some way, goads God on to do this. So let me just say here that even though in many English translations, you will see there Satan with a capital S-A-T-A-N, in Hebrew, personal names such as Satan, Alan, Mark, or Jared, not that I'm calling you guys Satan-like, can never have a definite article the word the in front of them. In the Hebrew at the beginning of Job, this character is called Hasatan, which really means the adversary. And what is being imagined here, and this happens in quite a few biblical texts, is that there is a divine court with all sorts of individuals. Some might want to call these angels or messengers. And In this particular depiction of the divine court, the adversary is one of the people who lives up there who can sometimes cause certain problems. So thus, the prose framework of the book of Job, there can be, and again, I shudder as I paraphrase it in this way, there can be certain blips in life. All your property can be destroyed all of your family is destroyed. The only one who is left in your family is your wife, who at least is depicted in the book of Job, is not the most supportive character. You're sitting there scratching yourself with a potsherd. And don't worry, eventually everything will be okay. And Job hardly has any word of complaint. He says, Yehi shame Adonai mevorach. May the name of the Lord be blessed. And the text is very clear that he did not curse God. However, the middle of the book is very, very different. In the middle of the book, the friends have the traditional theology. The friends say, 
very clearly to Job. I'm sorry, let me just say that the middle is structured more or less as three cycles of dialogue between Job and his friends. And this has some parallels in the Mesopotamian literature, some of which is also presented as a dialogue, where the first of Job's three friends, and I hope you can hear the scare quotes around the word friends, says to Job, you know your wickedness is great, that your iniquities have no limits. Job says, give me a break. You weren't there. I know what I did. And Job did what any person in antiquity can do. In such a case, he curses himself. There is a long, what is called a self-imprecation in Job chapter 31. And I'll just read two verses of those, because this is the only way in which Job can really protest his innocence. If I have raised my hand against the orphan because I saw I had supporters at the gate, let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder. Let my arm be broken from its sockets. An incredible measure for measure, self-imprecation. I've done something with my arm. May I need a sling and a cast for my arm, essentially. And thus, the friends and Job have two fundamentally different ways of looking at the world. Job's friends are incredibly traditional. They believe and they say in different ways, you're suffering. It must be because of something wrong that you have done. Job says, yeah, you're right, I'm suffering. But I know I haven't done anything wrong. Certainly nothing wrong that merits this extent of suffering. And thus, the only entity who can resolve this particular issue is God. And this is where the book of Job becomes both fabulous and frustrating. Mm -hmm. God appears <laughs> twice in a whirlwind to Job in speeches which are beautiful, but their purpose is nearly unintelligible. One set of speeches, I think, has the longest set of rhetorical questions that I have ever encountered. Job, where have you been? Were you there when I set up the world? And so forth. And I do not know the meaning of these speeches, and scholars have been debating them for centuries. But Job has the last word. And Job's last words are in chapter 42, verse 6. Al-Kain emas v'nichamti al-athar va'efer. And here, I'll offer you three different translations of these seven words. One, in the New Revised Standard Version, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So Job repents. Robert Alter's new translation, therefore do I recant. That's even stronger than the New Revised Standard Version. Job takes back all of that beautiful poetry that he said, complaining against God. And Alter continues, and I repent in dust and ashes. A wonderful and brilliant translator, not as well known, Stephen Mitchell, offers a third, very different translation. 
Therefore, I will be quiet, comforted that I am dust. Huh. Does Job repent or not? Is Job saying that God is right? Or is Job still insisting that standing by his integrity? I do not know. Is this ambiguity intentional as a way of saying this problem cannot be resolved? That's certainly one possibility. Or is it that even though it is for many of us, quote, our Bible, end quote, we really do have to recognize that we are more than 2,000 years distant from this text. And as hard as we might try, we cannot really understand what the original author or authors or editors meant by putting these words in Job's mouth. And thus, we can read and reread this book in different times of our lives and understand its answers about human suffering in very, very different ways. Well, first of all, both Alan and Mark, thank you for, this is a rarity in a podcast, I think, <laughs> to get such a sweeping look at a very complex problem with very complex literature. And I think this has been fantastic. What I'd like to do in the little time that we have remaining, I would like, you know, if both of you would want to chime in briefly on, I don't want to be simplistic about this, but how does maybe Job the character, depending on which part of Job you're reading, what are some similarities or differences between this one biblical book of Job and what we're seeing elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible, but also in the Mesopotamian literature, Alan? So, yeah, I think that Ludlow, for example, has often been read in the light of Job, and I think that they can be compared and contrasted. I think the contrast is pretty stark, because Shub Shemesh Rashakhan does, we think. It's pr I think it's pretty clear, even though the passage is broken, that he admits that he's sinned. The thing that's similar, in my view, is the depiction of the deity as all-powerful and unquestioning. You can't, I mean, you can question all you want, but he's going to do exactly what he wants, whether it's Yahweh or Marduk. So, the, the sovereignty and the omnipotence and the ability to do whatever the deity wants, the absolute rule, is similar in both books, in my view. What else is similar is that the lament language in Job participates in the same kind of cultural ethos. I mean, you could say genre. I don't know if I want to say genre, but the lament tradition in the Psalms those individual laments, like Mark was talking about in Psalm 6. I mean, decades ago, Klaus Westermann talked about the laments in Job, and that's exactly the same in Ludlow. One of the things that I've learned, and I've written about this, is that Ludlow is just chock full of the same kind of language, vocabulary, tropes, as the Akkadian prayers. And so, it seems to me that these very learned literary texts, whether it's Job and, say, Ludlow, even though they are these learned literary texts, they're at the same time incorporating the very real prayer tradition, the lament traditions, whether Israelite or Babylonian. And so, they're taking expressions of human suffering that people use to speak to the deities, and they've built them into these learned texts, almost as if to say Job and Ludlow are reflections on humans suffering and lamenting to their deities. And so, from both angles, the divine and the human, 
these texts, Job and Ludlow specifically, have broad similarities. The deity can do what he wants, the humans can lament all they want, and I think in the end, although humans suffer, something in the end of return to status quo happens, maybe, <laughs> and that depends on you know Job 42.6. The other thing I just want to mention, and this is a little bit off what you asked, in Mesopotamia, there's a very long reflection in a text called Era and Isham on the capriciousness of an angry god who starts breaking things. And ultimately, I think uh, Andrew George is the one who's developed this interpretation quite nicely. It's a reflection on the savagery of war. And the Mesopotamians lay this at the feet of a capricious deity. And we could likewise reflect on the flood tradition, both in the Bible and in Mesopotamia, that sometimes the punishment doesn't quite fit the crime. You know, wiping out an entire species almost. Seems a bit extreme. Savaging an entire, yeah, (laughs) savaging an entire area with war. And so, I think broadly speaking, what's going on in ancient Israel and what's going on in ancient Babylonia, people are trying to figure out why bad stuff happens. And they turn to the deities with lament and questioning. And it's okay. And even anger. I think, Mark, you pointed out very clearly that Job says some stuff that very few 21st century Christians would ever say, because they're worried that, you know, you can't really call God a criminal and still call yourself, you know, an upstanding member of the local parish. But they could in the ancient world. They were fine with that. And it seems like the gods put up with it. I think that's really important. I just want to highlight that, because that's what I'm picking up on here, is that in the Hebrew Bible and in the ancient world in general, there's not really a problem with God doing whatever God wants, having temper tantrums and doing these things. Sleeping. That, that, yeah, that's an accepted thing. And so to ask these questions, why am I suffering, is more of this embodied practical lament. Not It's not a conceptual, philosophical wondering how do these concepts cohere together into a unified understanding or worldview, but there was an assumption that God's going to do whatever God wants. And so, I just think those different assumptions lead to different expressions, and I think that's important. You know, I agree with that. Let me pick up on some of what Alan said, and also some of what he implied and what might have been implied in your questions. And Alan, you may very well differ from me in this. I do not think that the author of Job knew any of the compositions that Alan referred to or knew them in a significant way. Oh, I'd agree with you. I don't think they know each other. I think it's important, and going back to Alan's opening words, some of these compositions exist only in a single copy. These were not extremely well-known. These are an incredibly, some of them are incredibly difficult, sophisticated Akkadian that even learned scribes in ancient Israel who may have known some Akkadian and, for example, may have had some contact with what is sometimes called the Babylonian creation story, better just called by its title, uh, the Enuma Elish. They may have known that, but it's doubtful that they knew any of this material. Uh, Might there have been some discussion as different people were buying onions from one for another or buying wheat from one for another? Yes, in the most general way. And thus, is it possible that the notion of a dialogue that you have in the book of Job is based on some Mesopotamian models? That is possible. 
the lament tradition, which both Alan and I have emphasized, really does stand at the basis of a lot of what we are talking about. And again, coming back to the last point that you made in your question, this type of lament that you have in both of these traditions is really very different than what you have in contemporary prayer, and we would be considered rude or improper. In the Bible, when you lament, you are allowed to be angry. Quite strikingly, and this does not come through clearly enough in the translations, in the Bible and the laments, when you speak to God, you can speak to God in the imperative. You're allowed to boss God around. Prayers these days tend not to do that. I think a place where both of the traditions do agree, and this is the second thing that I'm going to say, is what differentiates us from the ancient world. Both agree about divine strength and sovereignty. But the second point, both do allow protests, despite, or perhaps better to say, within that recognition. And one of the places where you see this, since we've talked about laments so much, is in the last chapter, chapter five of the Book of Lamentations. And I'll just read the fourth and third from last verses. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. Your throne endures through the ages, an acknowledgement of divine sovereignty. But note what that's followed by, an incredible protest. Why have you forgotten us utterly, forsaken us for all time? And this type of protest literature is very important throughout the Bible as well, especially in biblical prayer. And yeah, I think is theologically very meaningful and worth considering in contemporary contexts as well. Excellent. Well, thank you guys both so much for uh, jumping on and having this. Again, it's one of the things that I really appreciate is, as Pete said, this is a broad and sweeping conversation. And you can tell we've barely even scratched the surface of Mm -hmm. the texts and understanding the context and understanding the nuances that are going on in both the the text and in the the theological traditions. So thank you so much for coming and scratching the surface with us. We really appreciate it. This was lots of fun. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, thanks to everyone who supports the show. If you want to support what we do, there are three ways you can do it. One, if you just want to give a little money, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash give. And if you want to support us and want a community, classes, and other great resources, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash join. And lastly, it always goes a long way if you just wanted to rate the podcast, leave a review, and tell others about our show. In addition, you can let us know what you thought about the episode by emailing us at info at thebiblefornormalpeople.com. You've just made it through another episode of The Bible for Normal People. Don't forget, you can also catch our other show, Faith for Normal People, in the same feed wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was brought to you by the Bible for Normal People team. Brittany Prescott, Stephen Henning, Wesley Duckworth, Savannah Locke, Tessa Stoltz, Danny Wong, Natalie Wyand, Jessica Shaw, and Lauren O'Connell. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. 
Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.